Section 12 of The Ring and the Book, an Interpretation, by Francis Bickford Hornbrook. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12. Guido. We have, once before, heard Guido speaking in his own defence before the court, and using all his skill and craft to save his life. Now we hear him, after the trial is over, and after the Pope has refused to revoke the sentence against him. He is in his prison cell, where his old-time friends, Cardinal Acciuoli and Abate Panchitichi, have come to notify him of his impending doom, and to hear his confession. In their presence he pours out, without much order or premeditation, all the thoughts and feelings that possess him. He recalls the place where the castle of the cardinal's predecessor was situated, and then breaks forth into an appeal for help, urging that his blood comes from as far a source. Perhaps, after all, their coming is simply a trick on their part to test his courage, but, he declares, he is calm as he hears them, knowing that he is innocent. All honest Rome had approved his part. His lawyers had assured him that on account of his priestly tonsure he could depend upon the intervention of the Pope, so meek and mild and merciful. But the Pope had refused the chance to save him. He is old himself, tired of life, and so is glad to have him die. Again Guido turns to his friends and cries, Sir Abate, can you do nothing? Things have changed so much since the days of his grandfather, who stabbed the man who merely threw a jibe at him as he passed by, and was never called to account for it. Now he does the same thing, and death is the penalty. The abate and cardinal must hear him talk. Others will hear him at pleasant supper-time. Then he exclaims, Life! How I could spill this overplus of mine! Among those hoar-haired, shrunk-shanked odds and ends, Of body and soul, old age is chewing dry. Those windle-straws that stare While purblind death mows here, mows there, Makes hay of juicy me, And misses just the bunch of withered weed, Would frighten hell and streak its smoke with flame. How the life I could shed, yet never shrink, would drench their stalks with sap like grass in May. Is it not terrible? I entreat you, sirs, with manifold and plentitudinous life, prompt at death's menace to give blow for threat. Answer his, Be thou not, by Thus I am. Terrible so to be alive, yet die. Now, he continues, he sees things clearly. His folly consisted in thinking he needed a wife, when what he seemed to lack was already within himself. But while he talks, he allows himself to wander to the contemplation of the Manaya which he had seen, in all its ghastliness, many a good year gone, just after it had decapitated a man who had struck a nobleman for taking away his sister. The Pope will not be merciful, as he ought, and so they now want his confession. Why do they want it? Well, because they wish to prevent people from imputing bad motives to the Pope. 
They want him to end the edifying way, but he will end telling the truth. He is a wolf, and of course the shepherds must hate him, but that is no reason why the wolf should lick the prong that spits him. Why should he repent? To do so will not save him from death. He is about to die, and so he will out with the truth and ask no respite. He has opposed himself to the regular order of things. He has fenced with the law, and law has thrust him through, and made an end of him. But they want him to acknowledge that virtue alone disarmed and slew him. Law does not suffice. They seek a word from him which shall somehow put the keystone in its place and crown the arch. To this Guido says, Then take the word you want. Long ago it was agreed that a man must not commit extra-legal acts because they pleased himself, and that whosoever did must pay the forfeit. He has broken this compact and loses his head. But repentance too? But pure and simple sorrow for law's breach rather than blunderer's ineptitude? Cardinal, no. Abate, scarcely thus. Tis the fault, not that I dared try a fall, with law and straightway am found underboast, but that I failed to see, above man's law, God's precept, you, the Christians, recognise. Collie, my cow. Don't fidget, Cardinal. Abate, cross your breast and count your beads and exorcise the devil, for here he stands and stiffens in the bristly nape of neck, daring you drive him hence. If ever there was such a thing as Christian faith, it has vanished long ago. It is no longer a reality in the world. Once, perhaps, it affected conduct, but it does so no more. Everybody does as he would do if he believed just the reverse of what Christianity teaches. Why should things change because men disbelieve what's incompatible, in the whited tomb, with bones and rottenness one inch below? What saintly act is done in Rome today, but might be prompted by the devil? Is, I say not, has been, and again may be, I do say, Full in the face of the crucifix you try to stop my mouth with. As for his friends, what had they taught him? They told him to get pleasure, but they never warned him of the consequences of pursuing it. No word of warning ever fell from their lips. Instead of that, they as good as told him to wear the sheep's wool over the wolf's skin. But now, when a wolf has shown his teeth too much, they join with those who seek his destruction. If he were only free once more, they would get a growl for their beckoning. Why do people call his defence plausible but false, when plausibility is the only reason they can give in favour of the best belief they hold? He had told his story of the flight of his wife with the priest, and how they took their pleasure in the two days' flight, and people call it incredible. But why? The story might seem credible to the husband, at least. Men are often blamed for not perceiving the misconduct of their wives. Why should he be blamed for suspecting wrong, when in fact there was none? Presently, however, Guido asks, What shall I say to God? 
This, if I find the tongue and keep the mind, do thou wipe out the being of me, and smear this soul from off thy white of things, I blot. I am one huge and sheer mistake. Whose fault? Not mine, at least, who did not make myself. He declares that he is unable to repent one particle of the past, and longs for some cold wise man who might go into the depths of his being, see how he came to commit this blunder, which others call a crime, and pronounce on his desert with reason. He was at the turning of the roads. Where did he take the first false step? He remembers Pompilia, who seems to stand before him now, as she stood for the first time, with the amazed look, all one insuppressive prayer. Might she but breathe, set free as heretofore, have this cup leave her lips unblistered, bear any cross, any whither, any how, so but alone, so but apart from me. You are touched? So am I, quite otherwise, if tis with pity. I resent my wrong, being a man. He was old, and the whole attitude of Pompilia showed her aversion to him. Her mother tried to persuade him that by taking a little pains with himself he might appear even better to her than a boy. But that deceived only for a moment. The man who saw that her neck writhed, corded itself against his kiss, and that her hand was rigid with despair when he clasped it. All this he resented because he was young in soul. So, he claims, Pompilia began by wronging him, and he hated her. At the marriage she came, knelt, rose, spoke, and was silent, just as she was bid, and this also he resented. She did all and submitted to his will simply because her mother bade her. There might have been some compensation in revolt, but there was none in this predetermined saintship. People, he says, told him that he must teach the child to love, to endure him. He must be contented, they said, with friendship, even as young lovers are when they have kissed themselves cold. But he did not wish to miss the daisied mile the course begins with. His wife was really no wife, but a nullity in female shape, who was soon to become a pungent plague when associated with the aged couple, Pietro and Violante. He does not see what these two had to complain of him. They had meant to fool him, and he had fooled them. Instead of taking their punishment quietly, they kept up a perfect goose-yard cackle of complaint because I do not gild the geese their oats. He turned them out, and was just beginning to enjoy the sweet sudden silence all about, when he found, my dowry was derision, my gain, muck, my wife, the church declared my flesh and blood, the nameless bastard of a common whore, my old name turned henceforth to, shall I say, he that received the ordure in his face. Guido reminds the abate of his punishment of a man who had written an abusive poem about himself, and asks how he can think he has taken undue revenge upon the parents of Pompilia, who had circled me, buzzed me deaf and stung me blind, and stunk me dead with fetter in the face, 
until I stopped the nuisance. But they may urge that Pompilia was innocent, and if so, he had no reason for murdering her. It is true she did just as he bade her. She sits up, she lies down, she comes and goes, kneels at the couch side, overleans the sill of the window, cold and pale and mute as stone, strong as stone also. She annoyed him all the more that she made no resistance to his wishes and desires. There must be some reason for it all. Is there no third party to the pact? Who is the friend in the background that notes all? Who may come presently and close accounts? This self-possession to the uttermost, how does it differ in aught, save degree, from the terrible patience of God? But his friends will say to him, all this only means she did not love you. What of that? The servants do not love him, but no less they render what he desires. The horse, admonished by the whip, fulfils the will of his master. If a woman can feel no love, let her show the more. Why, the soprano, who sang last week in Rome, for two gold zucchines the evening, made love in such a way that ladies swooned, although the poor bloodless creature never felt, He is my slave, whose body and soul depend upon my nod, can't falter out the first note in the scale for her life. Why blame me if I take the life? But there is no necessity for defending his deed. It is enough for him to say that he chose to hate her. Others have their likes and dislikes. Why not he? True, he might have turned the marriage to better account. It is easy to say that now, but he has taken the wrong step which is to end with the scaffold. Give him another chance and he will do better. These religious guides had all his life taught him to suppress himself, which really meant denial of himself to pleasure them. Now he had avenged an outrage committed on himself in a way that they blamed. But they ought to blame themselves. His wife proved a stumbling block in his way. He had resorted to law, but to no purpose. Then he had acted for himself in the spirit of the law. If things had gone at the inn, as he had expected, and if he had surprised the runaways asleep and pinned them through, even they would have agreed that it was a just judgment upon the guilty ones. But somehow matters did not turn out so. What might have been a success turned out a failure. His act, which might have been gravely, grandly right, now proved to be grossly wrong. So it was in his last act at the villa. As he marched towards it with his four companions, he thought everything had been so far successful and wondered where he should find the failure. Only two of the three might be within, or perhaps some visitor, outlingering others, might make an outcry. But all three were within, and no one else. But he found the three alone, as he hoped, and his failure came in his forgetfulness to secure the permit beforehand which would have given him the right to hire a conveyance to carry him away from the city. What was more, the only man in Rome who could not be bribed was the one to whom he applied. Otherwise he could have snapped his fingers at the Roman courts and found refuge in Tuscany, where the laws, 
understand civilized life and do its champions right all that might have been was balked by just a scrupulous knave when he was brought back to rome he found his wife riddled with wounds still living to confront him and by her deathbed story to turn his plausibility to nothingness when destiny intends you cards like these what good of skill and preconcerted play if she had been dead guido thinks he could have claimed that he had come to rome to see his child and fearing danger had taken four companions for protection but had come unexpectedly to the villa to find pompilia in the embrace of the priest these two backed by pietro and violante had sprung upon him he would have said and in defence of his life he was compelled to slay them all except the priest who had escaped what's disputable refutable here save by just this one ghost thing half on earth half out of it as if she held god's hand while she leant back and looked her last at me forgiving me here monks begin to weep oh from her very soul commending mine to heavenly mercies which are infinite while fixing fast my head beneath your knife tis fate not fortune he learns that his four companions were cherishing a scheme to cut his throat for their own benefit and he rejoices that he is to be executed last and so will be able to behold them all dangling high on either hand like scarecrows in a hemp field guido then comes back to his trial in which his lawyers tried every device in vain everything had been against him the appeal to the pope was useless law had condemned him while the pope merely bade him confess and be absolved well they may tell his holiness that he has acquired new strength from his despair he will give earth spectacle of a brave fighter who succumbs to odds that turn defeat to victory he will end his life and rome will approve him as much as if he had died on the field of battle fighting against the turks there is no reason why he should live longer the popular sympathy would fail him the moment he became free his friends would not care to be seen in his company at his home in arezzo the coming years would be sad and sapless the priests would leer at him his friends would look askance the populace would be in love with the poor young good beauteous murdered wife his brothers would remind him of his past mistake whenever he became angry or attempted to give them advice even his mother would groan confirmation of his failure besides he is fifty years old and there are no new openings before him he might renew his youth in his son but he would have to wait twenty years for him to share life with him then the son is apt to crowd his father to one side even if he were obedient and all that one can hire service just as good the four young fellows he says did my hest as unreluctantly a promise of a dollar as a son adjured by mumping memories of the past why then should he wish to live when all the means of life are lacking and now that he is about to die he will speak out the truth he never was a christian he is a primitive religionist he has obeyed the specific commands of christianity but in everything outside of these 
he has reverted to his own natural impulses. He intimates that his companions are of the same way of thinking. No one, he says to the abate, teaches you what Venus means. We give alms prescribed on Friday, but there is no explicit word in the book which debars revenge because the foe is prostrate. The old faith of the primitive religionist, obedience to impulse, can exist under the new forms. All that is needed is the sin of the sly. He claims that he has followed the logic of his position. I, like the rest, wrote poison on my bread, but broke and ate, said, Those that use the sword shall perish by the same, then stabbed my foe. What his friends ought to say to him, if they had the wit, is that he had merely pursued the wrong method, so that, while loving life as much as he did, they were compelled to punish him. He should, first of all, have put forth the religious motive at Rome, and claimed that he meant to prevent his child from being reared as a Molinist. True, Pietro and Violante were not Molinists, but he had only made the mistake of stamping on wheat when he meant to trample tares. Now the mistake can be atoned for only by death, which, indeed, may be a new beginning. He proposes, when he begins anew, to carry out his wolfish nature, to wallow in what is now a wolfishness, coerced too much by the humanity that's half of me as well, grow out of man, glut the wolf nature. Through all obstacles, he wishes his real instinct to reveal itself, as fire at the top of some mountain. His wife was of an altogether different nature, and, for that reason, was hateful to him. I, of the water that was that wife of mine, be it for good, be it for ill, no run of the red thread through that insignificance. Again, how she is at me with those eyes. Away with the empty stare, be wholly still, and stupid ever. Occupy your patch of private snow, that's somewhere in what world may now be growing icy round your head and aguish at your footprint. Freeze not me, dare follow not another step I take, not with so much as those detested eyes. No, though they follow but to pray me pause on the incline, earth's edge that's next to hell. None of your abnegation of revenge. Fly at me, frank, tug while I tear again. There's God. Go tell him. Testify your worst. Not she. There was no touch in her of hate, and it would prove her hell if I reached mine. To know I suffered would still sadden her, do what the angels might to make amends. Guido knows, it will be said, that others would have loved her for her saintliness, and that he did not know the value of a woman like Pompilia. What had seemed to him a daub was a Raphael. To this he replies that she was too pale and spectral for him. He could have borne with her if she had come to him rainbowed about with riches. He is not ashamed to allow that he prizes sordid muck as the best gift. He wants a woman who will work out his will, one like Lucrezia Borgia, and again he repels the religious ministrations of his friends. Cardinal, take away your crucifix. 
Aparte, leave my lips alone. They bite. Vainly you try to change what should not change, and shall not. I have bared, you bathe my heart. It grows the stonier for your saving dew. You steep the substance, you would lubricate in waters that but touch to petrify. He tells his friends that they too are petrifactions of a kind. He has unfolded his story, and they move not a muscle, show no mercy, ready to slay impenitence without waiting for contrition. The cardinal knows he is wronged. No one made inquisition for the cardinal's blood when he made his way through lives trodden into dust into the college. He is not even troubled by the memory of it. So he treads out the lives of happy, innocent things as he moves to dinner and kills the damsel fly that flaps his face. Why, then, because he himself has taken his own course, must the Pope kill him? He insinuates to the Cardinal that, in the election of a Pope, which must occur soon, he can be of great service in getting rivals out of the way. He adjures his friend to go to the Pope and urge his pardon, because he is innocent, or, even if murder crusted, his death would insult the Emperor and outrage the French King. He must remind the Pope, too, that Guido has friends who will avenge him, and ask him if he would send a soul straight to perdition, dying Frank, an atheist. In one breath, Guido urges the Cardinal, for God's sake, to say this, and in another, he abandons all hope that he will do so. If he cannot persuade them to do as he wishes, he will not make a confession. Take your crucifix away, I tell you twice. There follows a silence so prolonged, while the priests are praying, that it seems to terrify Guido, and he breaks forth again to assert the essential wolfishness of his nature, that loves to know, even at the last, that it is inflicting some pang. When the knock comes, he assures them, he will not cling to his bench, nor flee the hangman's face. After all, what is the worth of life? The Pope is dead, the Abate will not live more than a year with that hacking cough of his, the Cardinal can never become Pope. All about him are moving on toward death. What can it matter that he arrives a minute sooner than the others? As for the manner of it, he counts it gain that his death will be harsh and quick. The whole man, at his best and worst, comes out in the closing lines. You never know what life means till you die. Even throughout life, it is death that makes life live, gives it whatever the significance. For see, on your own ground and argument, supposing life had no death to fear, how find a possibility of nobleness in man, prevented daring any more? What's love, what's faith, without a worst to dread? Lack lustre jewellery, but faith and love with death behind them, bidding do or die. Put such a foil at back, the sparkle's born. From out myself, how the strange colours come. Is there a new rule in another world? Be sure I shall resign myself as here I recognised no law I could not see, there, what I see, I shall acknowledge too. On earth I never took the Pope for God, in heaven 
I shall scarce take God for the Pope. Unmanned, remanned. I hold it probable, with something changeless at the heart of me to know me by, some nucleus that's myself. Accretions did it wrong? Away with them, you soon shall see the use of fire. Till when, all that was, is, and must for ever be. Nor is it in me to unhate my hates. I use at my last strength to strike once more old Pietro in the wine-house gossip face, to trample underfoot the wine and wile of beast violante, and I grow one gorge to loathingly reject Pompilia's pale poison my hasty hunger took for food. A strong tree wants no wreaths about its trunk, no cloying cups, no sickly sweet of scent, but sustenance at root, a bucketful. How else lived that Athenian who died so, drinking hot bull's blood, fit for men like me? I lived and died a man, and take man's chance, honest and bold. Right will be done to such. Who are these you have let descend my stair? Ha! They're a cursed psalm. Lights at the sill. Is it open, they dare bid you? Treachery! Sirs, have I spoken one word all this while, out of the world of words I had to say? Not one word. All was folly. I laughed and mocked. Sirs, my first true word, all truth and no lie, is, Save me, notwithstanding. Life is all. I was just stark mad. Let the madman live, pressed by as many chains as you please pile. Don't open. Hold me from them. I am yours. I am the Grand Duke's. No, I am the Pope's. Abate, Cardinal, Christ, Maria, God. Pompilia, will you let them murder me? Count Guido Franceschini expressed himself before his judges as he wished to be understood. But in his second review of the story, we have the real man who discloses his motives and desires. Here we are allowed to see him, as he who reads the secrets of men's hearts sees him. He is no longer mindful of the social and religious conventions. What he utters expresses his real nature. It is not the Count, but the man who speaks now. No concealment is needed, and he attempts none. He lets us see the evil of his soul, unmixed with any thought of good. Mr. Hyde is now left without the influence of Dr. Jekyll. To rightly appreciate this, we must bear in mind that it is the utterance of a man excited, maddened, overwhelmed, who does not plan what he says, but who allows his mind to wander at will. His speech is the expression of pure passion, as the Pope's is the expression of pure reason. In it we discover how much pretense there was in the defence. One of the reasons which he had given for wishing to live was his mother's need of him. He cried in a way that impressed us. Let her come, Break her heart upon my breast, not on the blank stone of my nameless tomb. But, in this last utterance, he has no word to say about her, except that she will give confirmatory groan for unsuccess. Explain it how you will. 
we may justify this by reference to the excitement of the moment. But love does not so easily forget. We cannot help feeling that Guido remembered his mother only when he thought he could produce a pathetic impression by it. Again, he said in his defence of himself, that when he came to the cottage on the night of the murder, he might have abandoned his purpose if Pompilia had appeared in the doorway, and he spoke of her as the tender thing, the lamb that lay in my bosom, as once pure and good. But here all these terms of endearment are missing. Now he speaks of her as a nullity in female shape, vapid disgust, soon to be pungent plague, this pale poison my hasty hunger took for food. In his defence, he wished to live for the sake of his son Gaetano. He said, Let me lift up his youth and innocence to purify my palace. But now he assures his friends that a son will be more of a hindrance than a help, that, after all, he can hire a man for a dollar a day to do what a son would do adjured by mumping memories of the past. In his defence, he posed as a friend of law and order and society, but in his cell, he suggests to the cardinal how he may be useful to him in the impending election of a pope by putting some of his dangerous rivals out of the way. Of course, it may be urged that in the frenzy of fear and passion, he forgot himself, but it is more likely that he remembered himself too well. When it was useful to him to be a friend of law and order, he was ready to be one. When it was useful to him to commit an act of violence, he was prepared to do that. His personal interest was his only law. Guido's attitude toward religion was equally pretentious. In his defence he used the most formal state of faith and spoke, in the name of the indivisible trinity, in his last hours, he declares himself to be a primitive religionist, one who believes in obeying the natural promptings of the human heart and in the right of the stronger. He obeyed what Christianity specially commands, but otherwise felt free to do as he could and as he pleased. Give arms prescribed on Friday, but hold hand because your foe lies prostrate Where's the word explicit in the book debars revenge? He is ready to profess himself an atheist, if, by so doing, he can escape execution. We learn from the defence something of the way in which he considered his wife, as one who had no right to expect love, whose supreme duty was obedience to her husband. But now he bears the secret motives of all his actions. He was angry with Pompilia, because she was not all that he expected of a wife. He was willing to accept beauty and purity of soul, if he could have also either wealth or an efficiency which could aid his selfish purposes. The fact is, he declares, that his wife was too good. A Lucrezia Borgia, or an Olympia, or Circe, would have suited him better. Nothing in the conduct of Pompilia satisfied him. Did she obey him? desire his love when he asked it, come and go, lift her eyes, or cast them down at his bidding. In all this he could only see the stone strength of white despair. She struggled against him no more, 
and he suspected there was some third party to the pact. Was he reminded that all this meant she did not love him? He replied that love was not needed. He had so little sense of sincerity of soul that he believed sham love would do just as well. The sufferings of Pompilia wakened no compassion in Guido. They only annoyed him. He resented her evident repugnance to himself, and it simply vexed him that he was viewed with repulsion. Selfishness could not have been more supreme. Guido not only resented the sufferings of Pompilia, when he ought to have been moved to console and alleviate them, but he is sorry now because she, pierced with two and twenty wounds, persists in living, and so makes it impossible for him to present a defence of himself at the expense of her honour. No matter what becomes of her soul, if only he can escape punishment. It never dawns upon him that he is proposing a mean thing. He is too mean to see how mean he is. He complains of the misfortune which made his intention impossible. Well, the worst's in store. Thus hindered, hailed this way to Rome again by hang-dogs, whom find I here still to fight with, but my pale, frail wife, riddled with wounds by one not like to waste the blows he dealt, knowing anatomy. Guido refuses to show any repentance for his deed. He admits he has committed a blunder, and he is ready to pay the penalty, but he has no perception of sin or the need of repentance for it. Guido's idea of religion is a merely formal one. According to him, it is based upon a faith which has long ago ceased to be. Nobody, he claims, thinks of acting in accordance with it. The world goes on and looks the same with the profession of these forms as it would if everybody believed something different. Real acceptance of religion would make a change in a moment. It is interesting to notice how near Guido comes to the thought of the Pope. He also sees that men accept the Christian faith and act no better than those who do not, sometimes not as well. The difference lies in the use which each one makes of this perception. With the Pope, it is a reason for making religion more real and vital. With Guido, it serves as an excuse for a heartless conformity to the religion of the land. Guido feels that he is no worse than those about him. All seek their pleasure, not the will of God, and he has done only the same. He declares that they advised him to act the wolf's part, and he resents their willingness to take part against the wolf when he acts after the manner of a wolf. He claims that he acted upon the principles of those whom he was taught to follow. He reminds the Abate of the punishment he had inflicted upon one who had ridiculed him in a poem. He himself has done only the same to those who offended him. His purpose was no worse than that of others who pretend to deprecate his crime. To Guido, law was not an expression of eternal right. It was but a formal convention, which was good if it favoured him, bad if it opposed him. Whatever the code allowed him to do, that it seemed to him right to do. Guido's excuses for himself are significant. He will, in the first place, say to God, I am one huge and sheer mistake. Who shall say he is not right? 
Surely one who was well organized could not pursue the ends which he pursued in the way he did. The Pope pointed out the places where he might have done otherwise than he did, but who knows that, constituted as he was, he could have done so. If he was a mistake, he was, therefore, necessitated, by his structure, always to take the wrong course. He seems repulsive to us in his self-revelation, and we can well believe him when he says he has a wolfish nature. Guido bases his plea of forgiveness on this fact. But the trouble with this plea is that it is too limited in its application. He does not make this principle of forgiveness universal. It never dawns upon him that Pompilia was a pungent plague because, in relation to him, she was a mistake. The wine and wile of Violante annoyed him, and also the stupid ways of Pietro. But if he had been true to his principle, he would have borne with them in patience, because, like himself, they were mistakes, and therefore deserved not resentment, but the large tolerance which he desired for himself. That he did not accord to others what he expected for himself may be taken as a proof of what a great mistake he really was. Again, Guido says, I did not make myself. Pompilia makes the same plea for him. That fact saved Guido from a great responsibility. He had nothing to do with the conditions under which he was born, but he had something to do with the way in which he used those conditions. The Pope thinks that Guido might have profited by the straitened circumstances of his lot and made the stumbling block a stepping stone. He might have treated Pompilia with kindness instead of cruelty. The birth of his son might have stirred his heart with affection instead of prompting him to see only the gold in his curls, and so to the murder of his wife and her parents. Still, Guido might plead that, being the man he was, he must have dealt with the conditions as he did. No abstract reasoning can refute this plea, while no practical mind can accept it. While Guido has no moral perception, and no sense of responsibility, he is very bitter against those who in any way oppose or annoy him. Personal irritation supplies the lack of moral indignation. His spiteful and revengeful feeling reveals itself again and again. When he learns that his four companions had planned to kill him if they had escaped arrest, he rejoices in the thought that he will see them hanged before his own head falls. He declares that his stabs went deeper because he fancied he might find a friend's face at the bottom of each wound and scratch its smirk a little. He recalls the movements of Violante as tempting the sudden fist of man too much. He is glad because his friend, the Abate, must die soon of his cough, and because the Cardinal can never be Pope. It angers him because the Pope, who is so old and weak, is likely to live longer than himself. Hatred of everything but himself has gained full possession of him. He comforts himself with the assurance that all others must die as well as himself. Nor has Guido the redeeming quality of courage. Many men who have done nothing else well have died well. He shrinks with horror from death when it is imminent and the brothers of death come to take him to the scaffold he is utterly unmanned. He shrieks out a mad appeal to every possible power of help 
to deliver him. He even calls upon the woman whom he had wronged and murdered. Bishop Westcott, his essay on Browning's view of life, is one of the noblest which even this great scholar and thinker has written, says that in this cry of Guido to Pompilia, he shows that he has known what love was, and knowing it, has begun to feel it. Who can decide what was in that last cry? It may have been a selfish appeal for help to one who, because of her goodness, might save him. Or it may have been the expression of Guido's real thought of Pompilia. But whether he now saw in her a manifestation of love, in which he wished to share, or a power which might deliver him from impending death, no one can say. We can only trust the larger hope. End of chapter 12